We need to dedicate time alone to think. We need to be able to marinate the ideas, sift through them, and choose the ones that are most viable and makes us happy. that you are good wherever you are. This week, art advisor, curator, author, Maria Brito, and I have a conversation about career and making creative pivots when things aren't working, using your intuition in your work and in your art, the importance of solitude. And she talks to me about her trajectory of growing up in Venezuela and moving to the States and going to Harvard, going to law school at Harvard, and then starting her career as a corporate attorney before leaving it all to enter the art world where she eventually became one of the top art advisors. And she takes the time, this person who's incredibly successful, and she's so kind to me. There's a whole pocket towards the beginning of this conversation that I feel like I must warn you about where it really becomes a creative advising session for me, where I share pretty vulnerably about how I'm feeling about my career and career pivot wise. And she really gently gives me wise advice. And I hope that's interesting to you and also helpful to you in some way. We recorded this a couple months ago, and since then, I've been working on some of the things that we spoke about here, actually. And in my newsletter this week, I wrote about this and really how the only reason why I feel bad or behind in my life is when I start to compare. You know, we don't feel behind in a vacuum. I think it's when we compare our timing to the timing of other people or to the culture. Anyway, maybe I'll read a little bit of this newsletter at the end because it feels very related to what we talked about in an update on what I spoke about with Maria. Maybe you noticed, maybe you didn't, but we unexpectedly took a week off last week, but I've really been loving our episodes lately. I've been releasing them a bit out of order from when I recorded them to when we've been putting them out. But if you didn't listen to the last episode, it was with Sam Salad, the founder of Meals. And I think it's my favorite or one of my favorite episodes we've done so far this year, maybe ever. I really love Sam and he's so easy to talk to. And then the episode before that was a special edition annual birthday episode where a very important person to me, Sasha Jones, came back to host the podcast. And not only did she interview me, but she surprised me with a guest and also curated questions from my close pals near and far. And it was totally a true, real surprise. And before that, of course, we had iconic designer Norma Kamali. So those are all in the archive. If you're new here, welcome. I'm so grateful that you're here. 
I will speak to you at the end, but now my conversation with Maria Brito. You are really down to earth and cool and you make everybody sound like they are your best friends, you know? And so I think that's a very important quality to have when you're doing the job that you're doing, which is basically inviting your audience to the world of other people. And so congrats, because I'm very honored to be here. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah, I, I that's, that's so nice. Do you remember how you found the show? Well, I think it was kind of recommendations from others, you know, like the type of thing that you're always looking to talk to or to listen to a podcast that is refreshing and at the same time is not pretentious. You know, there are a lot of podcasts out there that are so pretentious, right? And like, you feel that the hosts just want to talk about themselves. (laughs) So I think it was more me talking to other friends who told me that your podcast was great. And then you know, I started listening and I got hooked. I think you're very good at what I what I said before is mostly making everything sound like a conversation that we could be having on a living room of your house or my house and having it all very organic and fresh. And I think that's very unique. And I always, I've always believed that the show is made by the host, regardless of the guest. Obviously, you're filtering your guests and you want to have good people, but it is the energy of the host what brings the whole thing together. Oh, that's so nice. Thank you for saying all that. I'm really happy you're here. And I know we had to reschedule a bunch. So I really appreciate you being gentle and and I'm excited to to talk to you and of course how could i not be gentle with such a gentle soul and you know you were sick i mean i got even worried about you i hope everything is okay now oh that's so nice well what i love about your work is i i love the harvard review because it's case studies right you know instead of making a bold claim like everybody is slow to change habits, which might be true. Instead, they'll say, let me introduce you to Derek. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I think you do that with artists to, to, to make a point. And that's what your, your new book is. And, you know, congratulations. It, it's about to be out. And you do that also in your newsletter. And I think a great place to start would be your latest edition of your newsletter that just came out. Um, And it's called The Groove. And this was issue 77. And it was titled, Why Career Pivots Are the Best Opportunities for Creativity. But what I loved about it is that you gave a case study of of several artists, right? Of, Of a couple artists, including Nikki, which I would love for you to get into. And then also you get into the company that started Play-Doh. So could you talk about both of those things? Well, you know, for the past two years, we have been listening to people talk about the great resignation, to talk about what is it that this pandemic has brought to light. And one of the biggest trends or answers is the pivoting and how people have either reinvented themselves in their jobs, quit their careers, started something from scratch, or 
just figured out that they were not necessarily so happy where they were and they went and they opened their own businesses. And so to illustrate the point when I wrote the book, because issue 77 of The Groove is a little excerpt of my book, I wanted to cover everything that had to do with creativity and having a creative mind. And so pivots are important to be covered in a whole separate chapter because this is pretty much what we have to do to thrive in the world that we live because the conditions around us change so fast. And when people are just too rigid and not willing to tweak and experiment, this is when the problems happen. So Nikki, the Sanfal, who, as you know, was this incredible artist, she started her career by being a rebel and she was shooting bags of paint on her canvases with a rifle and it was she was the only woman of a group called the new realists and so she was like rooted in anger and anxiety and she it's almost like she wanted to prove a point that she could be with the boys and she could be just shooting guns and doing these performances sometimes she did them in galleries sometimes she did them in parks And one day she was like, no, this is really not who I am. I want to create beauty. I want to create female sculptures. I want to have a light heart. I want to talk maybe about female issues, but from a different standpoint. And so she left all that behind that had given her initial identity for the first, let's say, five to 10 years of her career. And she started experimenting with Papier Mache, which was how she actually started stumbling upon the medium of sculpture and how she started painting her incredible and super saturated canvases. And so this is where she found fame for the next 35 years of her career. Not only did she become super world famous, but also really rich. And she took those ideas of the female body in all shapes. For for the most part, they were big and buoyant. And so she turned that also into perfumes. And she did collaborations with brands. And she did inflatable toys. And so she ran with what she wanted to do rather than what the world was expecting of her, which is usually what happens to a lot of people, is that they decide to pursue something like I did when I was an attorney instead of actually going with what you want to go and do. And it's the same thing in business. I also made that example of the Plato story, which is so interesting in that after the war in, in the 1940s, this family had created this product that was something that people used to clean their residual marks of carbon and everything that was left behind when people use coal. So it was coal to heat the houses. And when the electrical heaters took over, those people were kind of out of business because that was the product used to be a putty that you take in your hands to pick up all the 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 things that you know the coal heater heaters left behind. And so one day the kids told the parents, look, you know, the children like to play with this type of things. And why don't we just like figure out how to reinvent this product so that the whole thing doesn't go to hell. And the owners of the company said, well, what if we add some sort of like pleasant fragrance 
and we color the whole thing in different colors. Like we, instead of being a white product that is like on the cleaning section, we just add fun colors to it. And that's how Play-Doh was born. And they just presented it on a trade show and every, they lived in Cincinnati. So every school in Cincinnati adopted the product because they thought it was fascinating how kids were developing their motor skills and engaged with that for hours. And it's, it's interesting because up until today, it's been what, I mean, 60, 70, 80 years of that and children still play with Play-Doh. And it's a billion-dollar business. So I feel that we have to embrace the idea of pivoting all the time and not necessarily in a way that leaves behind your essence, but in a way that actually it meets the world where it is. And I'm sure you hear this all the time. You have to meet your audience where the audience is today. You have to meet your clients where your clients are today. And, And in order for you to do that, you have to be comfortable with the idea that you're going to have to pivot many times, not just once. Yeah. It's, I love both of those case studies and I love the smell of Play-Doh. So it was interesting that you mentioned that specific detail. And I've always liked that toy, that art, um, what do we call it? Art object. And no, no surprise. It's Midwestern but what you're talking about in, in both of these examples, and then there's the other example of your life and career is being able to stop and say, all right, I'm going to actually turn this around and do something different. That's describing a pivot. And that moment takes confidence. Like that moment takes support. That moment takes a lot of energy and I think some people often like we're not ready to do that or the whole reason why we're down in a direction that we need to pivot from is because of it not being the right time too. like so much of that might not be safe to make that pivot. So I really like hearing stories like that. I never tire from it, especially people changing later in life and later in the process, because I think it's even harder to do so then. The thing that came to mind as you were talking of doing something that you love, right? Or or doing something that you love and it working. And, And working is however you define it. Like working is maybe you have a nice time. Maybe working is you have an audience for it or you are making money from it or you're able to sustain doing it. However you define it is different. I think what I'm unpacking is I'm kind of in this place right now where I'm probably needing to do a pivot moment because I don't know if it's working, right? Like it's I, like I'm kind of, you know, been doing the same thing for a long time and I actually really do love it, but I don't know if it's sustainable and I don't know if it's it's definitely not growing. You know what I mean? So it's hard to make a pivot when the part that you have to pivot isn't about not liking it. You know, like I think in your example, and I'd love to get into that, you were an attorney and then you wanted to pivot to something that felt more correct for you. And then the alignment was there. And I feel like it's almost backwards for me. I'm doing something I like, but the alignment isn't there. So maybe that's like a pivot light or like a more of a shift. It's very interesting because there are two things that I, or, you know, first of all, 
Is it a matter of perhaps being more persistent or you have already gotten far enough to know that it's not sustainable and it is not for you in bringing the return that you say to yourself, well, this is fantastic and there is alignment and I love what to do because, I mean, look, you're super consistent and super professional and I would be shocked if it's about a matter of, of keep going and keep doing it. But there are certain things in life that there is a moment when you have already done almost everything and you need to shift. And sometimes when I say shift, it doesn't really mean that you're going to leave the things behind that actually give you joy, but it's potentially adding all the things. And There are so many things that are happening in the periphery of our lives that we are not aware of because there is only so much information and there is only so much that a human being can grasp through the senses, right? And sometimes what you need to do is to move like two or three or four degrees to one side or the other metaphorically to see where that shift could take you. And what happens is that for the longest time, we get very rooted in the things that actually we are doing that we love. And for certain people, it's kind of the opposite. They get very rooted in things that they hate, but they get so comfortable that they are not willing to see anything else. So it's usually the type of thing where you have to be honest with yourself and be also willing to look at that what I told you first is like two, three, or four degrees from where you are, left or right, to see what is it that could be added or that could be subtracted from what you're doing, because that is usually a small tweak that will take you places, if you will. And so I am not necessarily advocating for someone to give up something that you love, but I think that sometimes the alignment of what you want to see happening and what you love doing takes some time. And sometimes it needs gradual shifts and gradual tweaks. And sometimes you get to the level where you have done the gradual shift and gradual tweaks, and that takes you to another one because you have already gained a different type of momentum. You have stepped in a different place that is going to take you to another set of opportunities and another set of circumstances. And sometimes you look back and you have changed so much and so many times that it's not necessarily to correct anymore what had happened before, if that makes sense. Hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you. I think I'm doing that thing that you <laughs> that you said that you like about the show is that it's not all about those. And I feel like this question is very self-serving, but it just is what came to mind as, as you were speaking. And I don't know, maybe people can relate to this because I've been thinking a lot about the big shifts, right? Like I think that people talk about that frequently because it's a great story. Like your story about getting into your line of work or we hear about the ones that are like kind of forced, right? Like someone was doing something and for whatever reason, you know, it failed. And then that momentum of like a phoenix rising from the ashes and having to to pivot. And I think so many of us are like collectively in a pivot of coming out of 
a pandemic and into an uncertain reality of the world. And we're constantly going through personal pivots, going in and out of relationships and shifts with, you know, dynamics of children and parents and grief and loss. And so it's, it's really relatable. And I think pivots perhaps exist on a spectrum, right? Like there's these really high highs of the Phoenix rising from the ashes and a force pivot, or there's the, you know, choice pivot like you made. And then there's these kind of middle ones. And I think that's what you're describing is it's like, all right, there are pieces of this that you like, but like, and I'll be more specific. I'm being kind of like cagey with this and I'll just be like fully honest, but it's like, I read a book that came out like five to seven years ago, 2016, whenever that was. And since then, I've kind of been doing the same thing and I'm really grateful. And, and personally, I've had so much change. And, and personally, I really love my life and my friends. But financially, like putting all your eggs in the basket of a podcast isn't sustainable. And I don't really know how to fund, you know, I need to kind of figure out whether it's consulting or like, and I think like you said, like maybe it doesn't mean I stop doing the podcast and I don't do interviews anymore, but maybe it does mean I do something else to fund it. So I think it's a, it's a slight shift. And, but what really opened up my eyes from your newsletter was I kind of crave that moment. I almost wish it was, you know, this isn't working going left, so I'm going to go right. But I think that I just haven't figured out where right is yet or, you know, the direction, not the correctness. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's fascinating what you're saying because it's very honest with yourself to ask yourself those questions. And I think that the podcast has been such an incredible calling card for you and platform to bring your light and the ideas of your guests to the world that you should keep it going. And what I have seen is that a lot of people who have already been able to build a great platform with podcasting is that they keep adding all the things. And that is online courses, for example, communities. And that's the beauty of also being a podcaster is that you build a community of people who love you, trust you. And I think that when you start taking inventory of the things that you like to do, the experiences that you have gotten throughout your life, not just through podcasting, but all the things that you have done professionally and you put them together, you start seeing the interesting intersections where you don't have to build things from scratch. I mean, look, the reason why I wrote my book is because I feel that people sometimes that they they think that they have to be pigeonholed or they have to do one thing. And that is what actually kills creativity, right? You can be excellent at one thing, but if you do not stimulate your soul and your brain with other interests within your own business and area, you slowly start getting complacent. And we don't want that. We want people to be vibrant. We want people to be excited. We want people to do. And that is part of what I wanted to quit my career as an attorney is because I I am an entrepreneur and that's what entrepreneurs do. We take opportunities, we do things, we see things differently and we just want to bring our ideas to the world. And I have never censored myself when I have an idea that keeps popping up in my mind several times because 
I know is a part of my intuition is something that actually comes from a higher place and I just have to go and explore it. It doesn't mean that I have to go and spend, you know, a million dollars investing on something that's going nowhere. No, I start baby steps checking on things and to see how that feels for me and to see how that feels to my team and how that fits into my business model. But I do not shy away from things just because they are not the core. In fact, it's funny because a while back, I just met someone. She was a woman. She was not very nice. I think she wanted to test me. And she's like, but really, Maria, what do you do? And I, you know, I just had to answer, what don't I do? Because honestly, I do so many things and I am so happy knowing that I have this variety of outlets that fill my spirit. Like, you know, as an art advisor, my job is to work with art collectors to build these collections, to tell them what the new artists are, to help them curate them in their spaces. But I also have a whole creativity and innovation part of my business where I consult for companies, telling them how artists think and how to become more creative, obviously, and disruptive because a lot of these companies become stale because they are filled with manuals and way to do things. And, you know, I always tell my clients in that space of the companies, if it's not illegal and if it's not against the laws of nature of this planet Earth, what is actually keeping you from doing that? What is actually preventing you from exploring that idea? What do you know? Usually the biggest the most incredible disruptions in the world come from accidents and come from experimenting and come from taking chances. And so that's how progress happens, not only in big fields, but also in small companies and in small businesses. So I feel what you're saying. And I think that you do have the world of possibilities to explore. And perhaps what you need to do is to take some time off and alone to dig deeply into who you are, into the things that you feel that will bring you happiness and at the same time money. And I think that sometimes we shy away from discussing the topic of money. And I have no idea why, because we live in in a country that is very expensive where we pay an inordinate amount of taxes and we do have to have money. And I think that people with creative ideas, people who are disruptors, people who are shakers, those people have to get paid for those things. And so if you are an idea generator, if you are an idea maker, you have to take those ideas out of your head and materialize them in the world. And that's that's the objective of this book is that too many things and too many books on creativity just stay on the abstract. And I don't think that's helpful. I want to make sure that whomever ends up reading this book has every single tool to materialize whatever is in their heads. It doesn't matter if you're an accountant or a podcaster or an influencer or a dentist. It's important that people embrace the concept that you are pivoting, you're shifting, you're creating, you're aggregating. You you know, it's it's like an amalgamation of things that happen in, in someone's lifetime in a job. And it just doesn't have to be that one thing. It ha- it, you know, it's like, it's such a rainbow. It's, it's such a spectrum, like you said before, you know, the different things that can happen and shifts and pivots. And only you know 
what it's necessary to get your toes wet on like what is going to be the next big thing. And a lot of people do not take those chances and shifts out of first. One thing is because they are comfortable. And the other thing is they are afraid of failing and coming up short, which is a, a problem of our society. But honestly, I think that having a failure is a wonderful thing because you learn because you avoid repeating what happened. And I've worked with people in the financial industry as clients. And usually the guy who's lost the most money, the guy who actually had the experience to understand that there are ups and downs and that person actually survived both ups and downs, right? And so how you manage those ups and downs is what actually shows to the world that you can... Wow, that you the, the the things that happen to you are not going to be the ones that are going to define you. You know, failures are ideas that didn't work. So it's not that Katie didn't work out. It's not that you are a failure. It's not that I am a failure. I I always say this: the the failure is attached to the project of the idea, but not you. And so that gives you a lot of room to experiment and to take chances and to take bets and to push right in in different directions and that's actually very very important for creativity and to keep your to keep you curious engaged and growing because at the end of the day that's what everybody wants we want growth we want evolution we don't want to feel stagnant yeah wow thank you so much for for sharing all that, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head when you said you need some time alone and you need to kind of figure it out. And that's exactly, exactly right. And I think I'm scared of it a little bit because my my default is to just kind of keep going. And, and my life has been very full, you know, it's just like recording a ton of interviews and they're already on the calendar. So I'll need to like back into that. But that's exactly what I want. And and need to do and I'm feeling really drawn to and like having a lot of phys- like physical body things I think that are like forcing me to slow down and and do that and and then the other thing to your point of that I do relate to of Nikki and of the case study here is I have tried a bunch of things, you know, I've done online courses. I used to help people start podcasts. I mean, I still can and do, but I have done all these online courses and I've tried a bunch of different things, but I tried to make a magazine and that was like a big failure. And, but I survived and I can keep going. And I, and I was talking to a friend at the coffee shop this morning and and he was so kind and he was like, oh, I listened, I listened to an episode when I was on the beach in Hawaii and I was like, oh, no way. Cool. And, and he was like talking about how things can change in just a second. And he was like, do you ever do voiceover work? Do you ever do that? You know? And I'm like, wow, well maybe I could do a whole different thing. I haven't really done much of, or like there's infinite possibilities, but you just have to, you know, keep going and, and try to listen to get quiet enough to listen to the intuition that that you were mentioning. Well, that is actually a very important thing. And we live in a world that inundates all our senses with everything, right? It's it's from billboards on the street to music to noise and news and television in the background and whatnot. And that leaves very little space for intuition to flourish because 
yes, intuition can save you from an accident or to take the wrong path at night, but the intuition that talks to you about your next career step or the intuition that talks to you about what to really do with your life, it's the one that comes out of silence and solitude. And that is something that people underestimate. And I wrote a whole chapter, actually two chapters on intuition in my book, because I feel that for the longest time, either it was not necessarily something that was too explored in business and career because it was too woo-woo and too out there. And the other thing is that intuition can't be measured. So science is not, it, science does not deny intuition, but it doesn't measure it. What actually did happen, though, is that a bunch of scientists decided, and, and psychologists and researchers decided to review maybe, I think, 3,000 different studies of big leaps. Those big leaps are moments where either artists or scientists or big chefs or filmmakers get to their greatest ideas. And what they discover is that those people got to their greatest ideas by a process where they couldn't really explain how they got it, right? And so that's what intuition is, that you have a lot of experience and you have seen it all, let's say, if you're an expert in your field, and then suddenly something comes to you and you're like, where did I get this idea from? And you actually follow it. And that is the one where you get to the big leap, right? Like the big discovery or, you know, or the big production or the big service, product, film, whatever. And, but the, all those people also acknowledge that they spend time alone and in silence. And I think that we deserve that as humans because again, the world is convoluted. There are too many things happening. And I think that for me, those moments are as vital as oxygen. And people sort of like think that they have to go into this grotto with incense, burning incense and infrared lights and whatever. And for the most part, if you can really start with five minutes of time alone in silence and build up from there, you're going to see a lot of differences in your life. But it's, it just takes the commitment of the five minutes, right? And then six and then seven and so on and so forth. You don't have to go to a silent retreat in India. You know, it's not that, right? It's, it's just about being responsible for, the own, for your own mental you know, well-being. And if, if you know that the rewards are going to be all these answers that, that are going to come, because you don't want to go with impulsive hits, right? Like you don't want to go with just the first thing that crosses your mind. But if you do allow for the space to be in silence and you do receive messages consistently throughout a certain period of time, you, you should definitely take notes of those ideas and those thoughts. And you should keep a diary or a journal or keep them on your phone notes of those ideas, which usually you can connect you know, the dots between them and then find something of value. And mm -hmm. I think that you are obviously wonderful and fantastic. Um, but, you know, but for being so young and having tried so many things, I think you have to really give yourself a little break and a pat on the back because a lot of people, you know, who are in their 20s, they haven't done all these things. Okay, even though we live in this world that is so fast and, 
you know, people become, you know, famous at age 13 and they have world fame and concerts and, you know, 25 million followers or whatever. I don't think that that's kind of how the world operates for the most part. And I think that you are doing what you need to do to explore your interests. And everything that you thought it was a failure is actually a an integral part of, of your success because you accumulate experiences that you use in everything that happens in your life. Even if you don't know at the moment, you're using things that you learned from all these other things that maybe you thought were failures and maybe they were, but you are actually using the good things that you learned from those, you know, perceived failures and those projects that didn't work out to inform your life today. And that is invaluable. Oh my goodness. Well, Maria, thank you so much. This has really become the pep rally for me and I want it to be a love letter celebration to you and your book, but I mean, I'll take it. Thank you so much. <laughs> that is so nice. And- no, I, I want you to take it. I think that you should be able to celebrate yourself, actually, and to think that there is a bright path in front of you with so many things to explore and that you have a wonderful community. Hey, guys, everybody who's listening, you know <laughs> how amazing Katie is. And so this community is not going to go away. And so we just have to make sure that you know that Katie is here and that it's important to nurture, it's important to nurture loyal communities and listeners and fans <laughs> who find you refreshing and honest. And that's why this podcast is so amazing because you are so honest. Oh my gosh. Well, you're flattering me. That is that is very, very nice. And I think it really speaks volumes to you. And I'm not in my 20s, Maria. I'm 32. I'm Well, I'm 31, but I'm about to be 32 in like two seconds, basically. That's the 20s. Well, thank you. But I mean, I think that I think ultimately... <laughs> I only the only reason I'm saying that is because you're right. Like I, I've been talking about this with my friend who's who's been a guest on here, Crystal, pretty frequently about how age and when we all reach success is really personal. And I think it's the thing that or it's really individual, right? It's like, you know, to your point, I think talking about money and talking about the realities and the practicality of creativity is so valuable and 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 really cool that that's part of your work and part of your book. And at the same time, I think similarly talking about the fact that we all do things at different times at different rates. And, and there's always a moment where you're like, okay, well, I'm not going to be a prodigy anymore, you know? And I think a lot of people hit, she was making the point, she was like, you know, a lot of people have big breakthroughs or, you know, figure out how to buy a house or have something published or have a big, you know, work thing or whatever on the other side of 50. And some people, you know, have things sporadically throughout. And, and I think what we hear about is, you know, it's kind of glamorized people doing things young or hitting success young or hitting success on the first thing or whatever. And it's really common to compare ourselves to our peers and to look at the the top few of our, you know, age peers or people who came up with us and whatever our industry is and compare our 
where we are to where they are to where someone at the height of it is. And really, you know, that's kind of arbitrary because we might end up hitting our stride at a just not even not as well, but at a different time. And and I think that's something I'm that really felt like a a gentle shift for me to hear. You know, we are used to seeing these curated lives of people, right? On Instagram, TikTok. But I mean, I'm not on TikTok, but I have kids who are <laughs> my children. I'm, I'm that all my children are on TikTok. But we see a curated life and curated lives obviously are what people want to portray. And I understand that the origins of these social media networks are not necessarily for people to show the darker side and, and you know, their dramas and cry. I get that, you know, you just, you use this for a lot of people, they use this as a calling card for the businesses to promote themselves. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I mean, I've done it. Like it's, it's just fine. Right. But when you have that image of the world, and in particular, in the past two and a half years, we have been sheltered, right, with our, like, it's all about the screens, because life, as we know it, changed so much, and you start seeing it all these curations, and you're like, well, but is this real life, right? And it's not. I like this example, and it's, it's interesting, because, like, there is no such thing as an overall success, and... Yes, a lot of people have made fortunes very quickly, but a lot of people started really, really early. Like, you know, the first time Mark Zuckerberg was coding, he was like 12, right? And the first time Justin Bieber was playing the piano, he was three. It's accelerated knowledge is a reality for sure. And the path by which people attain success are shorter because also they get people, you know how it is, right? Like Los Angeles and Hollywood, like it's easier to dispose of people faster. You have yeah. a career like, oh my God, you know, whatever, she's 35 out, right? I mean, which is kind of crazy. I think things are changing. I think now there's more space for people of all sorts of ages and whatnot. But since we live in the age of curation and we live in the age of social media and people get bored so fast because they are exposed to a person for so long. And then they are like, I already know everything about this person next. Right. And then you see this incredible upward curves in those people's lives. And then you see this nosedive, which is crazy to think that how people get sort of like abandoned or how they become irrelevant because whatever happened, because people moved on onto the next big thing, because Gen Z just like are not necessarily loyal to celebrities or musicians and things like that, right? And so it's easy for us to get very confused about what real success, sustainable success over time is. But I... I would think that somebody who has been able to continue a podcast for 10 years that is has such a huge amount of listeners in my book is very successful. And so what you want to be doing is to keep exploring the intersections in ways that you don't necessarily have to go all in, but what can you do and what can you sustain? And, you know, if you want to have a team, what kind of people would you like to have around you? You know, a lot of this is kind of like how you execute your ideas. Sometimes you do need a solid team of people. And sometimes you just need a couple of freelancers to help you out. You don't have to put a lot of burden on you. 
do everything yourself because it's actually impossible. That I can tell you, it's just not sustainable and it is not effective or efficient to try to do everything yourself because that it really is the, the surest path to fail. There's only so much humans can do. Yeah. And I think we're, we all, there's only so much one person can do. Absolutely agree. And to make the same point in a different way, we all are good at different things or have different specialties. I don't have TikTok either. And I don't really, you know, I'm not, I'm not really sure exactly what, what is trending on social media, but I think I'll be like the Harvard review and what I love about your book, which is case study me when I am feeling off or down, when I go on there, it's a portal. Looking at my phone in any way really is a portal where yes. it will take me down a direction. And sometimes that direction could be a big high. Like I could be, you know, someone could say something nice about me on the internet or someone could tag me in something lovely, or I could see a friend's dinner and it could just make me really happy for them. Or there could be a day where I'm spiraling and I'm feeling down and a little bit depressed or on my period or stressed or, you know, had gotten a mean text or whatever it is. And I see the same friend's dinner and it makes me sad that I wasn't included or just knowing that it is something that I really can kind of only turn to when I'm ready to be open to literally anything coming at me. We sometimes get into these funks where we don't necessarily see how many incredible things can happen in one day, including the fact that, I don't know, your heart beats 20,000 times a day or something like that. And you don't have to do anything to just have to be there, right? Like you don't have to tell the heart like, Hey, you please beat so I can actually breathe and get my blood oxygenated and all that. Right. And so I, understand because obviously I'm human too. And I go into my very dark spaces at times, but I think that I have been able to shift that perspective to try, you know, every time I actually go into a dark space, I pull myself out rather quickly. I have been trying tapping, which I love. I have been, you know, uh, trying to like stop and breathe and close my eyes for a second and feel gratitude for what I already do have. And obviously these aren't things that come to me easily. I have to push myself to get to those levels, but I think I'm getting better at it. And it's because I do want to have a happy life, right? I think that the goal is to have a happy, creative fulfill life for me at least right and and that obviously entails way too many things but i think that the overarching theme is fulfillment and happiness with what i'm creating and what i'm giving to the world to my family and how i feel that i am contributing to a better society with my my ideas the work that i do and um and you're doing the same, actually. The fact that you reach so many people with this podcast, you're bringing your ideas and the ideas of your guests to thousands of others who are benefiting from it. And that has a huge ripple effect. Huge. Oh, that's so nice. That that means so, so, so much. And thank you for saying that. I, I, I kind of wanted to be like, what if I told you there are four listeners to this podcast? Would you hang up? 
<laughs> I would still I would still be thrilled. Um, you know. I'm just kidding. It's the um. quality. <laughs> <laughs> Today's episode, we're partnering with Athletic Greens. I started taking Athletic Greens because I wanted to be efficient. I wanted to have one drink that I actually really like the taste of that covers so many bases in terms of supplements-wise, vitamins-wise. I don't have to swallow a bunch of pills. I can enjoy this lovely, very green, very green color drink. And I think you might really like it too. I've been taking it for maybe three months now. I shared some with my friend Dexter who does workouts. (laughs) And as you know, I, or maybe you don't, I don't really do that. I just walk a weirdly long walk every day. But Dexter does workouts and he says that since he's been taking Athletic Greens, he has noticed an improvement and he really likes it. And I love it. So what is it? It is one drink with one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens. You are absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, and whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens that can help you start your day off right. The special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging that's everything, right? I really have found that I do have more energy when I am drinking this drink. And like I said, I've shared it with my friends. They like it. It's so convenient when you travel because they have these little travel packs and you can just stir it in with water. You don't need a blender, which I like. I don't currently have a blender and that's fine. I don't need it. It also supports better sleep, which I've been really trying to have better sleep hygiene lately, and I think Athletic Greens is helping me. It doesn't have any GMOs or chemicals or artificial anything, and somehow it still tastes good. It's, of course, vegan and dairy-free and gluten-free, and it's just really great. Your subscription actually comes with a year supply of vitamin D, which is important for us you know, especially if you live in a place like I used to where you don't get enough sunlight. It costs you less than $3 a day. And this is important because I used to be addicted to buying this $12 green juice in when I lived in the East Village and I would get one every day. And I really think this Athletic Greens supplement is doing all that that did and more. And it's easier and it's cheaper. And I just, I really like that about it. Let me know what you think about it. I would love if you tried it. It supports the show. It supports you. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition, especially heading into the flu and cold season. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash let it out. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash let it out to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. This week's episode is brought to you by Credit Karma. Credit Karma. 
Maybe you're planning for a big expense and you don't want to put those expenses on a high interest credit card. Credit Karma can help you look for a low interest personal loan that might save you money while you pay for your big purchase. Paying down debt can be stressful, especially when you need to keep track of multiple monthly payment dates. If you're tired of juggling due dates, consolidating with a personal loan could be your answer. That way, all you have to do is just have one due date a month and Credit Karma can help you find the best option for you. Credit Karma uses your credit data to find loan offers that are personalized so you can have a better idea of what loan amount you can actually get approved for. Credit Karma will even show you your chances for approval so you can choose between loan offers that you're more likely to get approved for and apply with more confidence. Comparing loan offers on Credit Karma is 100% free. It won't affect your credit scores in any way and it could save you money. Credit Karma, apply with more confidence today. Ready to apply? Head to creditkarma.com slash loan offers to see personalized offers. Go to creditkarma.com slash loan offers to find the loan for you. That's creditkarma.com slash loan offers. Thanks, Credit Karma. I want to go back to your pivot. Like when you were feeling, you know, you're going to your job as an attorney, how did you decide to go to Harvard and study law in the first place? Well, you know, my I grew up in Venezuela and my parents were very conservative. So I wanted to be a singer and a performer. And I was very serious into it. And at the beginning, when it was like, oh, she's going to the school festival. Oh, she's winning, you know, little contests here and there. They were like, oh, I'm used. But when it started to become serious and there was a touring band that wanted to pay me and things like that, they were like, oh, no, that's not a job for you. You are going to be an attorney, a doctor, an engineer, something like that, you know? And I was like, oh, so... I ended up selling out on that dream because it was there was a lot at stake, honestly. And it's like growing up in, in South America, it's not like growing up in the States where you say, well, the hell with everything. I'm going to go and wait tables and I'm going to find a job. It's not quite like that. So I said, well, OK, look, I don't really like math. I don't really like laud. So I'm going to be an attorney. And that's how I ended up in Harvard. And, you know, people are like, well, that's the best law school in the world. Actually, yes, it is. And I that my time there was magical because it's an immigrant. And wow, I mean, it was like a movie set right all the time. And I was like, I can't believe I'm here. And of course, it was an experience that I will cherish for the rest of my life. Uh, Nobody can take that away from me. But it was a very different story when I moved to New York and I started practicing in law firms because I hated it. It was countless hours. It was boring, dry, uh, you know, enslaving. And the thing is that every year they pay you more and they give you more perks and things like that. And it feels like stable and prestigious. But at the same time, I'm like, I don't care about this prestige and I don't care about this stability because I hate what I do. And I did that for nine years, believe it or not. And the year eighth, I was already thinking what is going to be my exit strategy. And when I got pregnant with my first child, I knew that was going to be the catalyst because I 
thought a lot about what I was going to be teaching my child and the things that I was going to model, right? Because kids learn not because you tell them things, but because they see you seeing things. And I said to myself, I am not going to forgive myself, first of all, because I'm never going to see him. Because once you're back in a law firm, you're not going to be, you know, able to see your child growing up. And second, and more importantly, I want to live a life of passion. I want to live a life of fulfillment, which is a word that I keep repeating. I want to live a creative life. I want to do what I want. And so I sat down with all, I described the whole process in my book, but also like how I took inventory of my skills, how I took inventory of my passions. I spent an inordinate amount of time in silence and alone. Law firms are good places to that because you have an office where like you're supposed to just be working, right? And like writing contracts and answering emails. So I close the door and I spend a lot of time thinking. Maybe that's what I need to do. Start become a lawyer to get my contact. <laughs> Leave me no. You just have to close the door. Seriously, I don't think I can afford it, it's, and it's. <laughs> and I don't think I'm as smart as you. It's fine. So that's ruled out. Me, it's, it's not. It's not. You don't need to be smart. You just need to be very dedicated. Anyway, so I just was like, look, I put a lot of ideas on paper, and I was paying a lot of attention to what was happening in the market, in the in the market, in the art market. I would sometimes go to galleries. I would sometimes go to art fairs, and I. So that it was a you know a thriving world, but with a lot of boring people, to be honest with you, and uh, a lot of mysteries, a lot of darkness. Not in this like arcane, almost like protected, right? And I said, "Hmm, this is like a good opportunity for me to go and and actually do better." Be more open, be more transparent. I want to blog about this. I want to use social media. I want to have a great relationship with my clients and not just transactional. I want to offer a lot of services that is not just you buy the art and I charge a commission and I, you know, and the next, no, I want it to be more like, what if I help you curate all the collection inside of your apartment or your house? And we create all these narratives around art. And so I became deeply excited about this idea. But I wouldn't have been able to get there had I not been paying attention to what was happening and how other people in this job that I now happily have, how people conducted themselves. And so there were a lot of blind spots that they were missing, particularly the piece of building community through social media, because at that time, the this was 13 years ago. So for 13 years, I've been building my company. And so what I what I realized is that the, the space of social media was ripe. There was Facebook, there was Twitter and nothing else. And there were very rudimentary spaces for blogging, which is what I did. And that started very, very little for me. And it actually, it's almost like it opened every door because as an attorney, one thing I knew how to do was writing, even though it took me a long time to sort of like find my real voice. But I never just put my eggs on just one part of the business because I felt that there were way too many things to explore. I worked on product collaboration with artists. So I learned a lot of manufacturing and retail by chance, because honestly, it's like it, it sort of happened to me that I had an idea and I executed it with three artists and it worked out so well that I said, I want to do more. And that was super interesting, super consuming. I would never do, I mean, like I get called all the time to consult on retail in partnership with artists. And I do that 
if I can, if I have the time, but like me producing things, I'll never do again because honestly, the world of manufacturing accompanied by retail are something that I don't have the stomach for. But I think that what I told you before is like, I have never self-censored my ideas and say, ah, am I crazy? I'm not going to pursue that. I go with what my intuition says is the right thing to do in the moment. And the trick, honestly, is action. Is that do not just let the, the intuition say the thing. And then you're like, no, man, I'm just so busy. Or like, uh, who is going to pay attention to me? Or who's going to read my book? Well, I guarantee you that if you get intuitive nudges more than twice, you must pay attention to that. And sometimes you, like I call it, I, I did this this group that you would love called Creative Underdogs. It was, a, and I'm going to still do it, this incubator for creativity and a place for us to be like alone together and work on things and take action. Because to your point, it's like, you have to catch it. You know, Elizabeth Gilbert talks about that of like, sometimes if you don't catch the idea, it goes, but it's not even just catching the idea. Cause I find that I've, I'm pretty good with that. You can usually like get the idea and catch it enough to write it in your journal or into your phone. Sometimes that is like a hit of dopamine to me where I'm like, Oh, okay. Well, that's going to be great. And I could just kind of ride on that. It's going to be great, but like it never becomes great because it never becomes, you know? So you have to like actually take action like somewhat quickly and not let it linger too much. And I think that is something that it sounds like you did with that project. That was you doing something that you wanted to do and were following your curiosity with a collaborator. And that's really cool. I think the excitement of doing great things and, and, and creating and inventing and is, is absolutely paramount to any venture that wants to be successful at some point. If you're not excited about something, it's just going to be very difficult for that to get off the ground. Yeah, exactly. I think there's this great David Bowie quote that you probably know about, but he, he talks about he was very selfish about the work. That's when it was his best, you know, when he was excited about it, essentially. Can you talk about your work in getting started those first couple of years of leaving the law firm and starting in the art world from outside of that career? How did you get started as an art consultant? And, and what is it like to be an art consultant? Can you talk about it a bit? Yeah, well, obviously, it was difficult because I not only came from the left field completely being an attorney, but uh, also I didn't really have many contacts. I didn't have any clients and I didn't really have, I mean, it w this was very, very difficult, but I had the sheer desire of succeeding. And also I, you know, I spent many years of my life going to galleries and going to museums as a child, as a grown up in New York. So it's not that I didn't know anything. Of course, I knew and I had a good eye for artists and I, get, I had a good sense of aesthetics, which was primarily what attracted me to all of this. But also, I loved art history. I studied a lot of art history growing up. So the first two years were very fun and interesting because I, as an outsider, had no preconceived notions of what was going to happen to me right? In other words, when you are an expert, you tend to be comfortable and you develop some sort of like blind spots because, you know, what I said before is that 
you have taken so many things for granted and you're so good at what you do when you're part of an industry that is very difficult to spot the great opportunities. But in my case, what I did is that nobody could tell me, don't go and don't try to talk to that person because that person is mean. Or don't try to ever think that you're going to be able to get that painting of that particular artist because they are never going to sell them to you, right? So I heard a little bit, but I was like, this is not going to stop me, right? So I did go and I shook every hand and I said hello to everybody that I could without fear. And that basically allowed me to see everything with fresh eyes. And people also saw me with fresh eyes, right? Because I had an intention to grow my business out of a combination of building an audience, but also being kind and demystifying and teaching and opening up doors, you know, for authors. And so that was quite helpful to me. So those two years were hard, but they were also filled with so much excitement. And so what is that an art advisor and art consultant does is primarily I have the responsibility to build the art collections for my clients. And what that entails is that I have to go to galleries, art fairs like Art Basel and Freeze and Spring Break and whatnot. I have to go to museums and I have to go to biennials all over the world and see what's happening, right? And so see what's happening for young artists, mid-career artists, old artists, the prices, take a pulse of the, you know, take the pulse of the market also with auctions, what's happening. And it's a very, very big market. And so my job is to be able to find the best art pieces for my clients, depending on their tastes and the homes where they live or the things that they are passionate about. And in, in this job, I had the incredible opportunity to get to know and work with more than 450 artists, some of the best contemporary artists in the world, actually, because in certain cases, my clients asked for commissions. So the artists had to create something that fits that client's like space specifically or office building or whatever. In other cases, as I said before, I partner with them to create products that we put in big retailers around the world. In other cases, I work with them because they actually became part of my content or I wrote about them in for the Huffington Post or for Elle that I wrote for, you know, many different publications. And some other cases, we just became friends. And some other cases, I curated exhibitions and I incorporated their art in those exhibitions. In other cases, was specific site specific projects like paint a mural or create, you know, or, or, you know, outfit an entire room with your art and things like that. So, I have learned an enormous amount of creativity from artists and I have applied their ideas to my business. And it's one of the most fulfilling and interesting things that I have done. And that's why I wanted to write my book is how to turn the artist's mind into the business part of things. And all these artists are actually pretty, very good business people too. It's not that they are starving it's not that they are crying in a corner. No, no. All these people are making millions and it's, it's, it's out of their work. And for the most part, I'm talking about painters and people who actually are in studios creating things in front of a canvas. But the many, many things I've learned from them 
is the value of your ideas and the respect and confidence that you have to have for your ideas and for putting them out in the world, if that makes sense. And so that's one of the things that I wanted to capture in my book is the experience that I have had working with both people as you know in the business world, people in the entertainment world, but also the mind, the soul, and the spirit of the artist for real, right? I have spent real time with these people. And the funny thing is that if you ask an artist, how do you come up with your ideas or why are you, it's hard for them to actually articulate what is inside of their heads and inside of what happens in their studios. And so I became kind of this bridge between people in the business world who actually were hiring me to do this consulting about creativity and these artists who, with so much generosity, invited me into their lives. I love that. That's really It's really interesting. What you said about artists reminds me of this. I want to read something that I I heard you say that I think really speaks to what you're able to do with highlighting artists in your work and as a art advisor to, to bring in new artists to people. But you say part of the labor and mission of being an artist is to say what others can't and say it with grace and compassion or funny or cartoonish. And we need that more than ever. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. There are many ways of being an artist, right? And um, the ones that I work with for the most part are visual artists, but you know, anybody honestly is an artist. If, if you are expressing your ideas through your images or a film or you're a chef, or you're a content creator, you're a freelancer. I mean, like there are tons of ways to express yourself as an artist. But, you know, I think that artists, usually the ones that I work with, as I said before, express themselves through their work and they do not necessarily want to talk too much about it, right? They want the work to lead the way. They want the work to express itself. And I think that, Obviously, for a lot of people, they will get the message. They will get the message that they want to get. And I think that a lot of what I have been doing is being a bridge and a translator. And I think that why is it that artists are so important in this world right now is because they are not bound by the rules of reality, right? They can paint anything. They can sculpt anything. They can make anything into a movie. I mean, you will never ask Disney or Marvel to be bound by their rules of realities because then the movies will be a different genre if you think about this, right? And so we just really, I feel it's very, very important to not only incorporate the mind of the artist into our own lives, but also to incorporate more art in our lives as layman if you're not an artist, right? Because it is a way for you to appreciate a different perspective, to learn a different point of view, and to embrace something that it's it's a potential for evolution in your own world. I myself have learned a tremendous amount of different cultural things and historical things because of the work of an artist. And it would have been harder for me to explore those things with other tools, let's say a book or a class, of course I could have, but doing it with an artist gave me so much perspective and visuals and it felt safe, right? And and uh, sometimes 
it doesn't necessarily have to be safe or feel safe. Sometimes you can feel a lot of anguish when you see something that an artist is experiencing grief or loss. But I believe that there is a common thread that unites us, obviously, and that's the human experience. And for the most part, we have very, very similar feelings, right? It's fear, anger, sadness, love, excitement, happiness, joy. And, and you know, it's a handful. And we all share that. And when you find that common spot with an artist, it's almost like you have a, a thread that goes from your heart to their to their hearts. And an enormous amount of energy flows from that. And I think that we need to cultivate that more and nurture that more, whether that is going to more museums or seeing more beautiful things online. I mean, although we are so fed up with the screens, if that is the only way that you have, then by all means do it because we need that more. We need that more in, in a world that has become increasingly intolerant of many things. It's going through so many tragedies, right? And it's no, we don't want to ignore the tragedies. We don't want to ignore, you know, wars and pandemics, but we want to have safe spaces to absorb beauty and points of view and, and things like that. Mm, yeah. My friend Zoe was going through something hard recently and we were talking, I was like, well, what, ca what can I do? Like, how can I help? And she's like, honestly, let's just keep each other inspired. Like we just need to stay inspired. We need to send articles and podcasts and we need to go to museums and we need to look at art and we need to be around beauty. And there's such richness to keeping, it sounds less important than it is, right? Like staying inspired, it almost sounds cliche, but I really think it's everything. And it maybe is harder when you don't have the, is as important as rest is to like create space to then take in or gather as I call it in this, you know, I'm like a broken record talking about this positive feedback loop that I think of creativity in of like create the space, then get inspired and then try things and then share and do it again and again and again. And I think rest should really be part of that. And I think it doesn't have to be done in that order, but I think, you know, staying inspired is, is really crucial. And I, I loved the way that you explained that. So with that, you know, what, what's inspiring you right now? Look, I'm very inspired by film is one of the things that um, one of the joys that the pandemic took away. But as soon as the first movie theater opened in New York City, I literally was the one who was there, the first one. I love movies. I mean, look, it's my job to actually go and see art every day, right? In New York City alone has more than 1,000 galleries, not counting, you know, the, I mean, 10 super solid, gigantic, fabulous, incredible museums where you can spend a whole day, right? Like the Met and MoMA and the Whitney and the Guggenheim. So uh, this is part of, I mean, my, I'm very lucky, right? To be able to do this for a living. And I obviously get very inspired by all the art that I see all the time, which is an enormous amount of things, but I am super particularly always have been moved by film and I have date nights with my husband and, and I also bring my kids on weekends if there is something for them. And, you know, because I, I develop, I mean, I think that first of all, it's an incredible way to develop a lot of awareness about how other people think. And that is definitely empathy, right? Like you 
put yourself on because it like you know i cry in movies and things like that and it's not happening to me but i feel that oh my god i feel the pain of this person right so i i love movies i i think that you know they are such an incredible way for people to escape um and also to learn and to embrace perspectives that are not yours so that's one of the things that I am so grateful to have in my life is the return of the movie theater. Mm. So that keeps me highly inspired. And I am always inspired by, by people who just never give up, right? Like I love people who just keep doing their thing with integrity, with, with ease and grace. And, and sometimes like there's no ease, right? Like it's very difficult to do things, but people keep pushing and just doing what they do best. And so I feel inspired by, you know, a woman like Amanda Gorman, for example, is amazing to see how far she's gone, you know, and, and she's a poet. And you would think that that's like not necessarily the career that most people would pursue. Right. But I am I'm, I'm thrilled to see her where she is. I'm thrilled to see her succeed in the way she's succeeding. I think the world is vast and I don't necessarily have a particular type of person that I'm obsessed with. I mean, it could be a very old woman, a very old man, could be a very young person, could be, a, like I said, a movie or a piece of art. I honestly try to find inspiration in everything that crosses my path at any given time because otherwise then life becomes a little bit like, you know, routine, if you will. Right. And so I, that, that curiosity and that desire to find inspiration on things is, I believe one of the most important skills or traits that I have acquired and that I keep nurturing for myself. I love that. Yeah. I, I love going to the movies too. Do you ever go by yourself? No, I rarely do go by myself because, you know, my husband also loves the movies and my kids too. So yeah, it's a good thing to do together. Yeah, I always have company, but, you know, occasionally if like I miss a movie and it's streaming, then I will watch it alone. You know, if I yeah. miss. Yeah. So then I'll, I'll and, and I want to see it badly. And then, you know, I, I know that I, if I may find it somewhere else, then I do it alone. Yeah. I, I always think about, I used to go to the movies by myself in New York somewhat often. And I would always think about Don Draper and Mad Men. Did you ever watch that? Yes. You know, because he, he's like doing essentially what you're describing and like getting inspired. And I think what's nice about going to the movie theater is what you can't do at home, which is prevents double screening and prevents distractions. And you're exactly. doing one thing like that alone is inspiring. And yes. Yeah. That's really cool. What's your favorite movie that you've seen this year? I think that Parallel Moms, Parallel Mothers by Almodovar with uh, Penelope Cruz was really incredible. I mean, no wonder she got nominated for an Oscar for that. I absolutely love that movie. Uh, the Tragedy of Macbeth uh, was incredible, too, with Denzel Washington. I think it was, wow, super incredible to see how Apple put that movie together. Tic Tac Boom with um, Andrew Garfield. I cried so much in that movie. It was so beautiful. And I have been in the midst of my book launch. So for the past two weeks, I have not been to the movies, which is incredibly sad. <laughs> but mm. I, saw a I saw a documentary actually two weeks ago 
called uh, Breaking Bread. And I think that anybody who can find it, please watch it. It's the story of a Palestinian, it's that documentary, and it's the story of a Palestinian chef who lives in Israel, and she wins the contest, whatever it is on TV, the super chef, the master chef, whatever, is the first time an Arab woman wins that contest in Israel, and she develops this whole documentary around why food is the vehicle for peace talks, because, mm -hmm. yeah, it's absolutely stunning the idea that everybody eats great food in the Middle East and it's all very super familiar, no matter if you're an Arab or a Jew. And I think that the idea that people can sit down and share a meal and discuss peace is an incredible thing. So that I watched that two weeks ago. And honestly, I'm still thinking about it because it was so incredible. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. I, it's so funny. My, my Someone I dated, he had this whole theory that I hadn't thought about in years, but as you were describing that documentary, I, I thought of him, he would always say, and it was so sweet and earnest, he would be like, if everyone would just sit down and eat, I think he said pie, like just something they really love and something real, like I think we could, it was so gentle the way he said it. I think we could really solve a lot of problems and, and that I hope he's seen that documentary. Well, yes, you can tell him. Yeah, yeah. I might have to get in there to do that. Um, <laughs> gosh, this has just been incredible. And I'm so happy that that I got to talk to you and that your book exists in the world. With with your book, can you tell us a little bit more about it and other you you've given us some anecdotes from it and the the parts on intuition really intrigue me, but I haven't gotten a chance to read it yet. Can you tell me, like, what's something in it that you haven't gotten to talk about a lot or part of it that is really special to you? You know, at the end of each chapter, I designed a series of actions and exercises that actually make the book come alive. And I call them the alchemy labs because I believe that everybody's an alchemist and you can turn your ideas into gold. So that is actually the subtitle of, of the of the book is the art and business of turning your ideas into gold. But the, you know, the the title is How Creativity Rules the World. And I wanted these sections to be highly actionable. And this is, in my opinion, where the book comes alive because you're reading the case studies, like you said, and you know, you're reading things that are about science, things about art, things about business. And then at the end of each chapter, you get this. It's not a summary, but it's the actionable points, the ones that are going to allow you to look at your life, the ones that are going to prompt you to write things. And so I really feel that this is like so important because each one of the 25 chapters of the book has that. And I would love to you know, start hearing from people if they're doing them, if they are applying them, if they're in because I think that when I, obviously this exercises came from when I was teaching this workshops in person in companies. And when I did my course online and things like that. And so I saw how many of my students or the people at these companies flourished with these exercises. And so now it's a different format because you're reading it and it's not that I'm teaching it in front of you, but it works the same. So, you know, many of them 
obviously point at the things that we've talked about, but a lot of them are just so fun to do. And it's just people have to want to have the intention of putting them in practice. And so I don't like to make things complicated. And I think complexity is the enemy of execution. And so the book is very straightforward. I mean, it's it's a long book, it's 250 pages, but it is super, super easy to digest. And it's very, each part builds on the previous one. So at the very beginning, I sort of like give people an overview of why creativity is important. I give, you know, points of data, points of history. I also debunk the myths, right? Like the myth is like, oh, creativity is genetic or creativity is something that you're born with or creativity is just for artists. And so I go after each one of those myths and I explain with both, uh, you know, historical points and data why, you know, that's, those myths are not true and why everybody's really creative. And then the second part of the book is all about habits of the mind, which anybody can you know, every, anybody has that, you have that, I have that, but it's about working on those habits that actually build the muscle of creativity. And then the third part is the tools, which is how do you put this into practice in your life, right? Because, you know, I want you to be able to take those things that you have been cultivating and actually experiment and bring them out. And the last part of the book is putting it all together, basically. So it's how do you, everything that you've learned before you materialize and you know i end the book with a chapter that is about seeing the future because that's what every innovator and every creative person and disruptor ends up doing is like they invent the future and they see it before we do i guess and and they go ahead and they take those chances and they invent the future at will and i think that all of us have that capacity in us to invent the future at will, to create incredible products or services, companies, podcasts, content, whatever, whatever it is that makes your heart sing. But again, we need to dedicate time alone to think. We need to be able to marinate the ideas, sift through them, and choose the ones that are most viable and makes us happy. And so I am expecting, you know, people to get enormous benefits from this book the same way my students have gotten it. And it's a very exciting time, you know, to bring this, particularly where we are right now in the world, people not satisfied with their jobs, people not satisfied with their careers, people questioning everything, people just wanting to walk away from jobs that made them unhappy, that drained their energy and uh, you know, we just really want to see people flourish. I don't know if you are aware of this piece of information, but in the past two years, more than 10 million applications were filed for new businesses in the United States. And that is a number that is absolutely unprecedented. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, I didn't know that. Yes, 10 million. And what the data also tells us, it's, it's not anecdotal, it's historical. The data says that new businesses fail within the first five years not because the the business owners lack funding or they lack money to start or whatever, but because they become so rigid in their ideas and they lack creativity and they lack innovation and they don't want to pivot to, you know, to the point that we started with. And I thought that was fascinating, right? Like 
to think yeah. that you start money, that you have the funding, that you have, you know, but then along the way, the obstacles that you find, instead of utilizing that to trick and pivot and change, you keep rigid. Like you stay with the same thing that you started with because it's difficult because yes, actually changes are difficult. Pivots are difficult. Nobody says anything is easy in life, but if it's necessary for the life of the business, then you're going to have to do it. So I want to see all those 10 million new businesses flourish. We actually want them to be more adaptable, more flexible, and not stay with the same idea that they had five years ago that by now may be obsolete, right? Like when Apple started, they were building microcomputers, you know, for the 70s, right? Like that, the boxes that were like the Mac, you know, and things like that. And they didn't stay like that. Right. They, that's why they keep launching new products. And that's why there is a new iPhone every year. And that's why they are working on the Apple car because nobody can just survive where, you know, where they have always been. If, if that makes sense, it's like the way to have the path to growth is to keep doing different things, is to keep exploring. And all those things can very well coexist under the umbrella of what your brand is on like the umbrella of what you are known for. You don't have to be like a different person anymore. You don't have to shut down everything. You just have to be interesting and interested in other things that are close to your own industry or your own business. And, and there are plenty, plenty of things to explore just by you know, just by adjacency, just by how big every industry is and how many different things can be explored. Exciting times for entrepreneurs, exciting times for creators. I think that we're going to see an American renaissance hopefully very soon because out of these all dark times, historically, we've seen that after all the plagues and pandemics in history, there is always a time for where ideas flourish economy flourishes and things, great things come to the market to solve problems in particular, obviously, but also to do things better. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Cause it's kind of, you know, that that's kind of the macro of the micro that we were talking about and individually, you know, it's darkest before the dawn or, you know, when, when things not, things aren't working, try something else, go in a different direction. And, you know, this is kind of talking about that collectively. Yes, absolutely. So I think we're going to see a lot of interesting and fun things happening. And for the people who are listening and they want to start their own business, just go ahead. There has never been a better time, really. It, the, the time is now. Yeah. Or there, you could say that another way too. There has never been a better time or there'll never be a good time. So just yeah, do it. There never you know? be a good time. Exactly. I mean, yeah. it's it's now. It's now. But the truth is that the conditions are very good yeah. for new businesses. So it's a very, very exciting time. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here and congratulations on your new book. And thank you for all of the nice things you said to me and, and help. And it, it truly is, is so nice to talk to you. So one thing I'd love for you to leave us with is I ask people to define, you know, their greatest lesson on creativity. So you know, I feel like I, I have to ask you that as well. What, what would you say that that is for you? The greatest lesson in creativity for me is when I decided to be my own self, when I decided to get rid of the whole 
costume of the attorney and the expectations of my parents or whatever it was, that is when my creativity flourished. When I was honest with who I was and I was willing to embody that person, the real me, that's when it all happened. It, and I mean it. And I mean it. And I don't want to sound corny or, you know, like a soap opera or anything. But it's the truth is that for too long, I like, was living my life as someone else. That was not me. And when I, when I, when I respected my individuality, when I, when I acknowledged who I really was and I was willing to go with it, everything happened for me. Mm, I love that. Has there been any piece of advice that you've gotten in your life that's been helpful to you or something that someone said to you recently that shifted things for you? I think a very important piece of advice that I received from my parents, mostly my dad, is that you're always going to get more by giving more, if that makes sense. I, you know, as an only child, I, I was like, oh, you know, give me this, give me that, whatever, right? And so at some point, my my dad was like, no, you you don't understand that you're you're going to get so much more by giving more, giving more of yourself, giving more of your time, giving more of your advice, being more generous. And that has worked out pretty well for me, the truth is. And it sounds like it's funny because I do it because I want to. I want to be generous. I want to give my time. I want to be of service. And But at the end of the day, I think that the world you know, is paying back and there is a sense of reciprocity or whatever, right? I mean, the more I give, the more I receive. So, and the more I get back, I approach everything with that sense, the sense of service, the sense of value, the sense of what I can do for this person instead of what I can get out of that person, you know? Yes. There's this great quote that's like, whatever is lacking in a situation, what can you give to it? what we give is what we get. And and not in this calculated, like, I'm going to do this, so you do this. But I think being of service and helping each other feels good, not in a fully altruistic way either, in a way of like, it's how we're, we are wired. It's how we're meant to connect with each other. And yeah, I, I really, really love that. And I'm, I'm happy to hear that 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 was something given to you by your dad. Well, you're incredible. Is there, and the name of the show is Let It Out. Is there anything you wish that I would have asked you that you never get to talk about? Anything else that you want to share? I think we let it all out. I mean, you and I could potentially stay here for three more hours, but out of respect to the listeners, I think that we are not going to do that to them because yeah. then it'll have to be like in a multiple parts. I'm happy to connect with everybody. I'm excited for my book to be out. And when, once this comes out, it is going to be there again. It's called how creativity rules the world. Mm. Well, I'm so happy it exists and congratulations on making it. And thank you so much for talking about it with us today and with me. And I'm so happy to, to know you. I am very happy to know you too, Katie. Thank you for the opportunity. You're absolutely wonderful. Mm -hmm. And I feel your energy. And this this has been really a highlight. Thanks. Oh, well, let's end taking the let it out deep breath together. You ready? Yes. Inhale. Let it out. Oh. 
thank you so much for doing that and staying and um, I'm glad we got it in. No, it's wonderful. And really, you know, I feel your pain right now, what you're going through. And I commend you for being someone who took chances, right? Because that's Mm -hmm. important. But I definitely think that there is so much, Katie, that you can do with what you have already built. You're so smart. You're so kind. You're so good at what you do. And you should definitely use the platform of the podcast to explore other things that are, are going to be financially successful. But, but I feel that you need time off for sure. And you need to be able to sit with your ideas and go through you know, a process of elimination of whatever it is that you know, it might be too complicated. It might be too hard, you know, and, and sort of like start with the low hanging fruit to see where that gets you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, thank you so much. And I, I think you're right. I mean, what you said about something coming up three times, like, I feel like this is just what keeps coming up for me is, is the, that piece of like needing to take some time and be quiet and, you know, that we gotta listen to that. <laughs> Well, my love, I think that it's all up to you. See, like, that's the thing. You have to want to do it. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and I do. So I just have to carve out the space. So I'll report back. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Katie. Thank you for everything and for the support. Thank you. Of course. And have an amazing night. Thank you for supporting me. Yes, well, you too. You too. Have fun at the Strand. That was always my favorite bookstore. Oh, I saw you were doing I something there. It. Yes, I'm doing that on Monday. I'm excited for that. That'll be great. That'll be great. I wish I could be there. Well, in the spirit. Yes, definitely. All right. Okay. Well, have a great soon. afternoon. Take care. You honey. too. Bye. Bye bye. That was my conversation with Maria Brito. Get yourself a hard copy of her book. It's called How Creativity Rules the World, The Art and Business of Turning Your Ideas into Gold. And sign up for her newsletter. It's called The Groove, and we talked about it quite a bit in here. I've really been enjoying the artist case studies that she publishes there, and I think you would as well. And speaking of newsletters, I actually am going to read aloud a little bit of mine. And this is something that... My dear friend, Sasha Jones, if you've been listening and if you listened two episodes ago, you know Sasha well. She recommended this to me. We listen to a podcast or she listens to a podcast where the host sometimes does solo episodes. And that's not really something that I've done before. I think I maybe have done one or two, but usually I'm always interviewing another person. And by usually, I mean pretty much every time, except for maybe once or twice a really long time ago. However, she was saying that maybe it would be a good idea if I read some of my newsletters out loud here, if I made an audio version of some of the Let It Out letters. So for those of you who might not know, I write a newsletter, used to be weekly, now it's not, (laughs) not even really monthly. However often I do it, but it can come to you if you would like. It's completely free. It's not a paid substack or anything that you have to subscribe in a paid sort of a way, but if you would like to receive it to your inbox, which no pressure because, you know, our inboxes are overflowing and overwhelming. And so I completely understand that, but it's called the let it out letter. And the link is in the show notes. If you would like to sign up, 
great. <laughs> if not, blessings and no problem. I am going to read a little excerpt from the one that's about to go out right now at the time I'm recording this, but by the time you're listening to this, hopefully will be out and in your inbox if you have already signed up. If you are not on the list and would like to receive it, let me know and I'll make sure it's available to you and you can get this one as well as the archive of other letters that I've sent. The reason I'm reading it now is partly because of Sasha and I's conversation where she was like, you know what, what you write in your newsletters is, it's very vulnerable. And Sasha said it was relatable. And her point was that some people would prefer to receive that information auditorily here or just don't really read newsletters, but they listen to podcasts. And, you know, turns out I'm actually one of those people. (laughs) So I thought that I would do my best to read aloud a bit of my newsletter from this week. This is an excerpt. So I tell this story at the beginning that I am not going to tell here. And the actual newsletter is very, very long. So if you want the uncut, extremely long essay version of what I'm about to read to you, that's available in the newsletter, and you know right where that is because I spent about four minutes explaining it. (laughs) I can't keep anything tight, but all right. Here is a little bit from the center of an essay that I wrote for the newsletter this week. And I just wrote this, so it's fresh. And when I recorded this with Maria, that was in March. So some time has passed and, well, you'll see because you just listened to that episode. So I'm talking about comparison and I tell this story about how in gym class, remember the day we all ran the mile? It was anxiety provoking for me. (laughs) And there were those kids who would like sweep in in like six minutes and wow, the gym teacher. And then there were, you know, the normal paced pack of children. And then there was, you know, that group of kids who were walking with their hands on their head, you know, because they told us that helped with the side cramp. Well, I wasn't part of that group. I was behind them. (laughs) And I always felt so ashamed and embarrassed of how slowly I ran the mile. I always finished, but I walk jogged most of it. And I was always last. And that made me feel really ashamed. And thinking about it now, I only felt ashamed when I compared myself to the other people running, right? Like if I just thought about the fact that I just slowly ran a mile, that's not really shameful. That's just a fact. It's only when I compare my timing and my pace to other people that I feel bad. So I'm not reading yet. This is, but this isn't there actually, but this was my, you know, uncut off the cuff version of that story. So I'm talking about how comparison to other people's timing in their lives is the only reason why I ever feel bad or embarrassed about my own. Okay, now I'm reading. When I was in my early 20s, I had a full-time job, a boss, health insurance provided by my employer, a long-term relationship, 
and for silly eating disorder-related reasons, was sober before it was cool. Today, in my early 30s, I have creative projects that make some money but inconsistently, worked front retail shop jobs, started today actually, freelance SEO writing for a website, haven't had a long-term relationship in years, and stayed out late more in the last week than all the times in the entirety of the decade of my 20s combined. Is this backwards? Is this shameful? Is this irresponsible? Or does this only feel wrong like in gym class? For me, my 30s, not my 20s, is the time I can handle staying out late, drinking some, casually dating, and the uncertainty of an unpredictable freelance career. Courtney Barnett sings, This line is comforting, but not true. More accurately, the line would be, you might get there, or you might not, or you might go elsewhere instead. We grow, and therefore what we want changes. We redefine it and move closer to it, and detours inevitably come up, moving us further and closer to somewhere else. A few years ago in 2020, I was sitting with someone who was reading an Alan Watts book. I don't remember which book or where in the book, and if you know, please tell me. He mentioned to me this passage that was about the difference between how we think life will go versus how it actually goes. Alan Watts depicts this with a diagram. A grid with straight lines represents how we thought it would be, and a wild curved line over top of that grid that looks like a twisted lasso represents how it actually is. Back when this friend of mine showed me this diagram in his book, all I said was, wow, that would make a really cool tattoo. But now, two years later, I see how I'm living in the wild lasso line, not the grid. Last month, I talked about my desire for focus in the newsletter and here all the time on the podcast, especially after my episode with Nadine Artemis. I still do really want focus, but also people pull our focus, making the Alan Watts line even more winding and more beautiful. And that's worth forfeiting some focus for at least sometimes. In the Big Thief song, Time Escaping, Adrian Linker sings this line. To me, this alludes to the need for alone time versus the need to contact others to quash my loneliness. And then when my loneliness gets replaced by being around other people, I'm distracted and I'll need to concentrate again. And therefore, as she says, separate a cycle of leaning into detours, then retreating to process what I observed while moving around in them is a process I repeat like her refrain. When I sit alone in my own head for too long, I feel anxious about being behind or stuck at my age. But this only happens when I'm comparing my timing to the timing of other people's careers or relationships. 
That's a little repetitive. I've covered that at length, but anyway, onward. Birthdays tend to make us measure where we are against other people at our age, but that didn't happen to me this year. I was focused on the people around me and happy that I was here, that I was in California. In 2016, the furthest west I'd ever gone was Chicago. I'd never even visited this state, and today I live here. I wasn't trying or yearning for my life today, but I'm really grateful for it. This is me not reading. There's more in there, but I truly am. And I don't know where I'm going to be in another seven years. Maybe it'll be somewhere that I don't even know exists. Hopefully. You're doing great wherever you are. Thank you for being here right now. The last several episodes, we've had guests from all different decades with all really unique timelines. We had herbalist and author Vanessa Shanker, who is in her 40s. We had Sasha interview me for my birthday. She's in her 50s. We had designer Norma Kamali, who's in her 70s. And then Sam, who's in his 30s like me. And the through line, I think, of all of them is just that they had lives that they never could have anticipated and are still so young (laughs) and figuring it out. I love you. I'm so grateful that you're here. If you want to support this podcast, it'd be so cool if you could share it with a friend, sign up for the newsletter. You can always leave a review, which I like cringe to ask for, but I was just listening to a podcast and they asked. And so here we are. I'm just asking (laughs) if you can, that would be cool. If not really no problem at all. Don't worry about it. And our kits, if you want to check out the let it out kits, they're on sale because I'm going to make a code right now. (laughs) And the code is time. All right. I love you. I will talk to you next week with artist Kimmy Quillen, an old friend of mine from New York. And by old, I mean, she's young, but we've been pals for a while. And thank you so much to Maria Brito. I think she's so sweet and kind, and I am really grateful that she came on the podcast. So please check out her work and let her know that you listened. No emoji, no need for an emoji. Maybe just like an old sort of smiley face with the colon, space, dash for a nose. I like the smiley face to have a nose. And then a parenthesis, one parenthesis facing, you know, the way to make it smile. I also just want to leave you with a quote that I heard this week listening to another podcast from Elizabeth Gilbert. And we spoke about solitude and my desire for spending more time alone which I still feel and want to do and am doing to some extent but I heard this quote this week that just really resonated with me and I wrote it down and I just want to read it to you in case it's helpful to you too so this is what Elizabeth Gilbert said in a recent episode of the we can do hard things podcast 
I spend a lot of time in solitude. That's like a very big top line for me. I need it in order to be able to hear what I need to hear. Otherwise, I'm looking at too many other people and asking them if I'm okay or not. Love you. Talk to you next week. Bye.